0: Welcome to this edition of the Wispy Mop Music Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd Middle Initial C Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And you were just listening to Dan's theme from Cold Reality, a song or an instrumental that Tommy 1M Wright produced on his CD, Tommy 1M. And for those of you who don't know who Tommy is, have never met him, because I'm sure there are lots of folks from outside the confines of my area here where we produce the show, have never met him. The reason he's called Tommy 1M is that's how he spells his name, T-O-M-Y. And I am so tickled that we're going to have him on the show today. Unfortunately, due to the coronavirus health scare, we're advised not to be in close proximity with other folks even if they're close friends so we're going to be doing the first podcast via cell phone today hopefully we can hear all the way through my cell reception here in the studio is not the greatest but we're going to do the best we can so you're going to hear some bumper music while i get tommy on the line i'll be right back
1: Hey, good,
0: good morning, Todd. Tommy 1M Wright, how are you, sir?
1: I'm doing well.
0: Well, I'm so tickled to be have you on the show, but this is the very first sh- podcast I've done via cell phone because of the coronavirus thing I just mentioned to everybody. We can't do this in person. So we're going to find out if this works. Unfortunately, we won't know if it works or not until we finish the show. So <laughs> thank okay, you I for being it. a part of the show.
1: Hey, and thank you for... Uh... How this turned out, because uh, wasn't yesterday your birthday?
0: It was, thank you very much.
1: So, belated uh, birthday greetings.
0: Thank you. As my son says, you know, Dad, you're, you're getting older. You, you need to be really careful. Don't be so cavalier in these hard times. And I'm like, no. <laughs> uh,
1: Yes, sons.
0: Yep, that's the way they are. Anyway, I have a quick question for you. Okay. How cool was it the very first time you heard your song, on NPR's Car Talk.
1: Uh it was amazing because believe it or not that Friday before Memorial Day weekend I was wondering I said it's been about 90 days since uh I submitted this to uh the producer for a click and clack and the uh that next morning I got a call, "Hey, turn on the radio that <laughs> playing your song. And uh, all weekend, uh, my mother-in-law in in, uh, California uh, had heard it. And that evening I was actually playing a gig in, uh, uh, I guess it was West Virginia at the time. And uh, it played uh, shortly before (laughs) I started playing on stage. So it was pretty amazing.
0: Well, a nice way to introduce yourself to the crowd to say, hey, I was just li- listening to myself on NPR's Click and Clack.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So when was that? How how many years ago?
1: I think this will be 12 years uh, this Memorial Day weekend.
0: And you wrote that song when?
1: I wrote that song, I believe, in 1977.
0: And for those folks listening who don't know what song we're chatting about what's the title of the song uh,
1: the title is i'm gonna get me a car
0: and you wrote that when you were stationed in germany i think weren't you
1: i was it was uh sort of the realization that uh and, and i tell everybody when i play this this is uh, tommy wright's version of the blues uh it doesn't res- resemble anything that sounds like quote the blues but uh i had plenty of cause um, at the time I'd been overseas, um, uh, a year or so and uh, a couple of years and, um, single guy, uh, my love life was kind of in the dumper. Um, uh, being in the army and being overseas was sort of a, 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 different, uh, experience for me and things weren't, uh, you know, you debate, you know, early on in the military, you know, am I going to make this a career or how's this going, you know, my first, uh, engagement with, uh, with new people and new situations. So I had that kind of going on. Um, I actually interviewed for a job, um, at another location and that didn't come through. And so I was just kind of say, Oh, what the heck? Uh, I guess the, the solution for, for all these things is to get a car. So that's, <laughs> that's the, the backstory on that.
0: Well, let's go way back. The, uh, you're from Massachusetts, like I am.
1: Yes, I am. Melrose, Massachusetts.
0: All right. Now, take us back to when you were a kid and then bring us forward, fast forward, in, oh ab- in about 15 minutes. Who was Tommy 1M Wright at the age of, say, five? And then how did you, you get to your musical self and, and so forth?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I was uh, the son of a military family. Uh, and age five uh, I would have been in Texas. Uh, My dad was at uh, Prairie View A&M College and he was a professor of military science and tactics there in the the mid-50s and uh, interestingly I've gone back and I've seen photos and I've shared photos with uh, Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise Uh, as a formerly uh, the newsletter and now now it's the sound post but I had uh, a picture of Um, Mrs. Wright's rhythm band and Mrs. Wright was my was my mom and so she was a school teacher and uh, we were in uh, say Prairie View in Hempstead Texas and uh, she had organized a nursery school uh, a kindergarten and she homeschooled me first grade and tutored me all through high school pretty much Um, but there's pictures of me playing uh, with the rhythm band and I was on Maracas. And so early on in my, my life, I had exposure to music to either participate, uh, by playing it or being exposed to uh, the music. And, uh, in fact, my first instrument was my father's, uh, for me playing was, uh, on my father's violin that he had as, as a child. Uh, so, uh, music was, uh, Always a part of my life. And in the home, uh, we listened to a variety of things. So from opera to Ray Charles to Mahalia Jackson to, I said, uh, Puccini, uh, the classics. And then Bing Crosby. And interestingly, in the mid-60s, my parents, uh, for Christmas, had gotten me an album of country classics, uh, Jim Reeves and... uh, it was pretty amazing. So <laughs> fast forwarding, playing with Willie and the Chaperones wasn't quite a departure because I'd kind of been exposed to uh, this old-time uh, country Western music. So uh, growing up in the 60s and in, in the Boston area, like, like you, and you have a few years on me, you're out actually performing. I was enjoying listening to, say, WBCN uh, in Boston uh, Dick Summers had a show called *A Loving Touch*, and it kind of exposed me to poetry and to uh, singer-songwriters. And Phil Oakes was a, a big influence, and I really enjoyed him. And uh, another point in this this uh, thing thing of living and living with music, I actually got to meet Phil Oakes's sister at a uh, in a series of uh, Folk Festivals, the Susquehanna Music and Arts Festival uh, in the late uh, 99 and for the next 10 years was involved with them. Um, But I played my dad's violin, I had uh, some lessons. So from fourth grade up to junior year in high school, I played the violin and along the way the Beatles happened. And uh, I always wanted to be Ringo, so my first drum was actually I had a pinewood desk, and I took a drawer out of that, and that was my snare drum uh, <laughs> to to the dismay of my parents. but uh, uh, I eight days a week was the first thing I attempted on the, my uh, desk drawer, and I thought it was pretty cool. and um, some of my neighbor buddies, uh, you know, we all wanted to be musicians, but none of us really played. But I figured uh, I had the drums now, so I, I was going to be Ringo. Uh, and actually, one of the guys that I wanted to play with, he had loaned me his Red Gretsch guitar for a couple of years. And I had a Jimi Hendrix songbook with chords. So it was to uh, kind of learn my chord shapes from that book, the Electric Ladyland book. And uh, I think the first song I played on the guitar was Sentimental Journey uh, note by note uh, with my uh, index finger going up and down the E string. And then uh, years later, uh, my mom actually sprung for a drum set for me. And I was destined to go in the military. Uh, and so I think it was at Christmas time, uh, senior year, I got a drum set. And for, I guess, the 30 days before I joined the Army in 1970, uh, just about every night I was in the basement playing playing the drums and uh, inviting guitar players and other people to come in and jam. So I guess it was a good way for them to ensure that I was going to stick around to get enlisted uh, <laughs> 30th, 30th of June. And my dad actually swore me in. And uh, the, the string about all of this and the music part of this was that in the military, I had the opportunity to continue to play music. And when I enlisted uh, in one of my early assignments, I actually went to the, the rec centers that, that they have set up, and there was a drum set. So I, I didn't take the drums with me. That was too hard to do. Um, but I did in 1971 when I was at prep school when it, for the uh, United States Military Academy. Uh, I was a cadet candidate, and I was at Fort Belvoir, and that was where the, the prep school was back then. I'd actually gone to into Washington, and it was in, uh I guess, 1971 when I purchased my first guitar, and I've had a guitar ever since, and the guitar has been sort of my uh, ambassadorial tour uh, tool, uh, because everywhere I went, I had the opportunity to, to play the guitar. I, I played in Germany when I uh, got into songwriting, and I, I'd actually... I've had a, and I had this guitar uh, when I was in school. Uh, I had it, I was at West Point for a year. I had, I believe I had my guitar with me. And then when I um, went to Norwich, I transferred to Norwich in uh, 72. I had my guitar and and played it there Um, and was in a musical group at Norwich and actually recorded. But overseas, uh, I played, uh, with the new songs that I was writing uh, to my fellow soldiers and families in Germany. And then uh, I played when I was reassigned um, in Arizona. Uh, I played and wrote more music. Uh, and like I said, uh, I had the opportunity when I, to, I was in Korea and I played uh, to in Korean orphanages. And I actually jammed with uh, USO bands when they, they would come to visit. And in Turkey, I had a guitar and I actually had a group there and played music. And at Fort Bragg, I was in a rockabilly thing. Uh, and in Panama, uh, I played the guitar and actually lived uh, in the economy out um, with the with Panamanians. And this was like five or six years after the invasion. So... Uh, this was a, a pretty interesting time, but the guitar really sort of, uh, I guess, was a sign of goodwill, and uh, like really got myself into the community. And they had a, a thing uh, at Christmas time called a uh, presadis, and I actually played with them. And although I'm not Catholic, I was invited to to play it in a Catholic service with my neighbors. So. Um, Music is—I uh, don't say it's the cure all, but it sure helps uh, sort of unite uh, unite the world. And I and I found that out firsthand.
0: So you're actually, in a sense, a global musician.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm an international uh, musician. So.
0: I mean, there's so many musicians, especially in the singer-songwriter genre, of which you and I are are classified in. It's the acoustic or folk or singer-songwriter. Yeah. who would froth it the bit to get the chance to perform in Europe or wherever. Uh, Europe, it, especially England, seems to be the, the stepping-off off point or the stepping-on point for most musicians when they travel overseas. But you've played all over the world.
1: Um, just about.
0: Now, what was that first guitar you purchased?
1: Uh, it was a Giannini.
0: Yes, out of uh, Brazil, I think, isn't it? Or right, Argentina, it, one of the other.
1: Uh, Brazilia, Brazilian rosewood uh, back and sides. I forget what the top was, uh, and I had that for a long time. And I actually, I I did some uh, ministry there in Hawaii. I did some prison ministry, and actually uh, gave the, that guitar to uh, to one of the soldiers uh, there in Hawaii. So I, I, and I played in Hawaii too. So I. I did uh, the prison ministry in Hawaii and, uh, tried to do, some, and did some, <laughs> I was actually in Lorton, uh, prison doing, uh, trying to do some prison ministry there and the lights went out and I said, I don't think, uh, I'm gonna pursue this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, that, that guitar, uh, was was the one that, that got me through. It was the one that I I wrote uh, co-wrote uh, my first song uh, at, uh, in Norwich back in uh, Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont, and that was uh, oh, 1975.
0: And what was the name of the song? Uh, uh,
1: now don't complain. Uh, and this was basically realizing that. Here I've gone through uh, enlisted in the military in the army. I've been at West Point. I've been at Norwich University. I was on the eve of being commissioned, and I was wondering, is this really who I am? Is this really me? And uh, it was in the the guy I co- uh, co-wrote with. Uh, we <laughs> it kind of uh, resonated with him too. Uh, he was going to go in the military, but he was uh, medically disqualified from a a football injury, and he went into uh, went to law school, and but he took his music and actually played uh, to get through law school, and back then, it, it really paid well. So um, many years later, he and I uh, rejoined after I came back from Europe after four years, and he'd written songs, and I'd written, had written songs, and, and in fact, uh, the car song actually was in that first recording session back in I believe it was 1970 or 1979 when I had come back. Uh, he had joined me. So
0: now that, that first song you said you co-wrote with him, do you remember yeah. any of the lyrics?
1: Uh,
0: or summarize?
1: Uh, yeah. So basically it was, uh, you tell me all I should be, uh, I fit your mold, but am I free? Uh, I, you say to me, it's very clear. You've compromised. I don't complain. So that was uh, a real bummer. I think when he played it out
0: once. Well, so, I mean, it sounds good enough just when I hear that one line. That that might be a good song to resurrect. And maybe you can't remember all the lyrics, but you could probably rewrite the rest of the song. Might be well, a fun I mean, thing, fun exercise.
1: Yeah. Well, I I mean I I have all my lyrics. Uh, I've got a a big binder uh, that I've shared. Uh, with friends, and actually that was my platform for uh, singing, and uh, it it took a while when I decided, hey, look, I really want to be a uh, a performing songwriter to wean myself off, you know, the music stand and the lyrics, and that's when I think uh, things really changed when I was able to stand up, and you know, present my music and uh, to sing my songs without, um, and it's, it's, it's not a crutch. And I think now, you know, as we get older, you know, we have to refer to, to the, the sheets, but you know, the, the pros have these, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the what do they call the, the, you know, the teleprompter, oh, yes. you know, yeah. it, you know, so, uh, but there's really, uh, a different, uh, edge to your performance when you can just it's you and your your instrument and you just sing you know without that and uh, so it took some time in doing that um, and it took me about uh, 30 to 60 days just practicing like the songs from my first cd so i could actually play all my songs um, you know all the way through in the order that they were there and it it was pretty amazing feat um, to be able to do that. So
0: now from a recording standpoint, you mentioned that early song that you co-wrote that you actually recorded it. What happened to those earlier recordings?
1: Um, I, I believe I, I actually do have that recorded. Um, yeah. So when, uh, Roy Williams was was my uh, my classmate from Norwich and my recording uh, buddy and co co writer for, for that song. Uh, we did a session uh, in, in Northfield, Vermont. It was a Green Mountain Studios, and uh, so now don't complain was actually recorded in the the guys in our group. It was called Mesa Win. So can you believe that we're in Vermont and here we, the, <laughs> time, the name of our group was Mesa Wind. you're like blowing blowing softly in the Southwest Plateau, you know, all that stuff. Meanwhile, we're in the Green Mountains. Um, so uh, yeah, we recorded it and uh, it turned out really, really well. Um, so, but in, uh, another interesting thing, uh, maybe a point of encouragement for, for other songwriters. I think that was the first time I had heard myself, we'd actually done a rehearsal the night before he went in the studio. And one of my favorite songs when we played out was Nature's Way by Spirit. Uh, You know, it's Nature's Way of telling you something's wrong. You know, how appropriate, you know, to talk about that now. Um, But uh, that was like one of my favorite songs. And I heard myself uh, singing and I was so disappointed
0: (laughs) (laughs) tumbling the first time we hear ourselves
1: yeah and uh uh, so we i i we didn't record it i said there's no way i'm doing that uh and and i would like to uh resurrect that song uh, because it's a beautiful song and it's great sentiment um but yeah it it took me some time and even when i recorded tommy 1m um i kind of got over you know how I sounded, and and I and Billy Kemp was my producer, a um, co-producer on that, and uh, I really you know got the confidence to to sing that and to do some other recordings. You know, Todd, I I actually had a second recording with Billy like six months after I finished the first one, uh, but it it never saw the the light of day, uh, and it was interesting to go back because. Uh, I had such great success, I thought, with the uh, the first recording, but to go back in, uh, it just it wasn't clicking. And so I was talking to Billy, and he said, "Well, why don't you make this sort of like a live, live thing? We're not we're not going to track a whole bunch of additional instruments, but why don't you do your little rap intro to every song?" And so. Uh, it's it's sort of like a live studio performance where I did the interest, introduction and backstories for that next set, set of eight songs or more. So that was a great experience, but I, I don't know. Um, Jeff Fight, who I record with at uh, Torchlight Studios, has sort of become the, uh, the holder of all my follow-on recordings uh, that I've done here in the last 10 years or so. And uh, we were actually working on the, the Celtic Fairy, which was my uh, traditional. Uh, it was a contemporary, uh,
0: kind of a rock opera in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I call it the Celtic Fairy uh, Contemporary Folk Musical. Uh, and and interestingly, with that, that was like 55 minutes straight, um, where again it was all memorized, and and uh, I I did that. Um, with uh, Brooke Robbins and uh, Russell Iceberg or the three of us as a trio. And then we tracked, we did tracking and Russell did multiple uh, um, instruments and, and Brooke sang uh, lead and back. And
0: and Brooke played bass, I think, didn't he?
1: Yeah. Brooke played bass and is an excellent guitar player in his own right. Um, And uh, an instrumentalist of, multiple instruments and then russell has actually gone on he graduated from northwestern uh, university and concert violin and he's working on his masters in uh in canada so uh yeah so it, it, it was it was great um so i got over my fear or my concern about my singing voice and sort of damned the torpedoes and and uh so it's out there so you know People like it. And so uh, I'm encouraged to uh, keep recording and keep playing.
0: Well, the one thing that stands out to me, because I listen to, I I should, I was going to say much music or many CDs, however you want to put it, because I just love to hear other people perform and I love live performances, but I also love their recorded music, not so much for the production value, but more so I can read the lyrics if, if they're available while I'm listening. And the one thing that really stands out on Tommy 1M, your CD that we've been referring to for the most part is how clear your voice is. You never have to wonder what your lyric actually is. So many performers, you'll be singing along and you go, oh, I have no clue what that line meant because I can't really understand it. Yours are very, very clear.
1: Yeah. I, I made a point of sort of articulating and, and being clear. Uh, and I, I like you said, it, it sort of it, it detracts if you can't understand and you have to lean in to hear what people are saying. And so I sort of made a point. And then I think uh, from my mom being a school teacher and my dad uh, being a sort of noted uh, orator uh, and giving speeches with the Kiwanis Club in, in his post military career and, and with him being an instructor. That I was sort of exposed to. Hey, this is how we how we speak, and this is this is how you how you do that. And so I translated, and I guess it was uh, inculcated, if you will. Uh, so, yeah, thanks.
0: Now, do you well, find being in the studio to be easy, difficult, nerve-wracking? You hate it? You love it? Uh,
1: no, I. I've had very positive experiences in, in my uh, recording um, experience. Uh, the the one thing I have to say to all the engineers uh, and producers is that, um, and I've been fortunate um, by referrals from people that I trusted, that these people who have taken the, the time and effort and made the investment are really all about uh, giving you the best product Uh, that they can. And uh, so there's always this comfort, Um, you know, there's always the offer of water or something to drink or, or some snacks or something. And so, I mean, it's really, uh, it really helps, you know, an artist to have a comfort uh, and a trust uh, from, from these folks. So my hat's off to, to everybody that I've recorded with.
0: Now, I'm looking at the cover. It's actually the little booklet from Tommy 1M. And I'm reminded that your your publishing company, or the name you put to it, is Man on the Line Music, isn't it? That's correct. Now, how did that come about?
1: Uh, With BMI. Um, I actually had a a friend take a picture of me. Um, She was a poet. And uh, she took a picture of me uh, playing with some uh artist friends here in uh I guess it's on the border of Jefferson and Frederick uh, the barn at uh Mary Lou uh the Mary Lou barn you mm-hmm. know yes and uh it has me sitting there on this stool that I that I had uh, and I actually took that photo and made it a silhouette and kind of as we're looking for a logo uh, and that's how it came out like man on the line. Uh, so it's me sitting, it's my silhouette of me sitting uh, with this extended line and it's always sort of been uh, kind of my music was sort of on the line. You know, I got close to close to the edge, but not over. And so that's kind of a story about the man on the line.
0: And you have a song that is titled the edge is in the title and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, Oh, the edge.
1: Yeah. The edge. And so that is, uh, one of those, uh, interestingly it, it's, and there's a, uh, I guess a spiritual aspect to, to everything that we do. Uh, I played it for a friend of mine and he says, Oh yeah, I got this thought, uh, this is about temptation. And I said, bingo, you know, that's the, uh, you know, getting close to the edge, you know, either succumbing or not succumbing. And so, uh, there's this sort of, uh, fanciful or fantastic, uh, middle, middle portion that sort of takes you into almost the abyss of what it would be like. And then you return to your, to your, um, your senses. And then, uh, you know, said, I'm glad that that didn't happen, you know. So that's that's kind of what that's
0: all about. Well, the last song on the CD, track number 16, is Stylish in a Casual Kind of Way. And I did play it for the previous uh, two shows ago. Yeah, I I heard
1: that. And
0: the one thing, and I mentioned to this people all the time, is I, I refer to you, I don't know if I started or someone else did, but named you the Dapper Troubadour. And the reason for that is because whenever I see you, whether it's work attire or casual, just walking around, but especially on stage, you are dapper.
1: Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that hat and uh, the clothing, uh, I grew up, like I said, in the, the late 60s. And when we saw... And it was, you know, the the hippie era and the and the Beatles. You know, even though when they played out, they're they were very well dressed. Uh, and then years later, you know, they did the the Sergeant Pepper album, and they're all in costume. But you know, watching uh, the rock musicians of the 60s, uh, they're either flamboyant or they were all sorts of eclectic stuff. But it always struck me, you know. I, re, I I guess subconsciously Richie Haven struck me, and of course Jimi Hendrix uh was a, a major influence. Uh and so as I was being a student of live performance, uh I would I would watch um people, you know, how they dressed. And my big I would say um I learned a lot from my female uh Friends and I wasn't trying to you know, emulate, you know, how they dress. But I, I noticed that if they were performing, it wasn't, you know, casual. It wasn't sort of a, a grunge or punk thing. It w- there was sort of uh, some special presentation, and it just sort of. And I've, I've heard this, you know, if you want to be a musician, you need to look like. When I actually walk into one place and they said, "Oh, you're the musician," well, um, yeah, it was kind of obvious. Uh, (laughs) on many levels, but yeah. uh, And so that's always been my thing. And even though, uh, you know, some, some of the other folks, you know, from open mics and things don't necessarily dress up, I made it a point, this is, this is who I am. And this is what I'm going to do. And um, the hat that I, I wear, Uh, My dad had come to visit me when I was stationed in Panama, and we'd actually gone to a market, and he had purchased the hat, and uh, this is, I think, back in 1995 or or 96, and uh, when he passed away in 1998, and I was going through his apartment, the hat was there, and so I'd never written anything for my dad, but wearing the hat was always a tribute Uh, Because, again, the exposure to music and, you know, playing his violin, you know, my initial eight years of playing and performing with orchestras and stuff, uh, that was part of it. And then I kind of made the hat my own. Somewhere I lost the original hat band and used the bandana and then stuck feathers in it and, and all sorts of stuff. So I, it was just in keeping. And when I was playing music at Beans in the Belfry on Sunday afternoons for 11 years, um, that kind of suited um, that association. You know, Beans was kind of funky and eclectic. And, and then they had me, you know, doing my thing and singing songs of, of of the late sixties and seventies, it, it all sort of fit. And so when I played out, um, that was, that was my thing. And so. Well, thanks. it works.
0: And I'm yeah, a, yeah. I, I'm, I am a big fan of dressing the part. It doesn't mean you have to come out with a tie. It doesn't mean you have to come out with a, you know, like you said, mentioned earlier, the Beatles and the Sergeant Pepper, um, uniforms, but, before we as musicians ever open our mouths or strum our first chord people see us walk onto the stage whether it is a stage and we're coming from the you know the sides or whether we're in a coffee shop and we're just walking through the crowd that's i call it curb appeal um, when yeah. you sell homes it's the the impression you get in the first 3 seconds and right. i'm a firm believer that you should make a good impression before you ever open your mouth because the if the audience sees and likes what you look like or thinks it's interesting they're going to pay more attention.
1: Yeah, and and for me it was sort of how dare I dress like this? I better be good. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know after the initial shock and, and because Todd, you know, with my music, uh there's a certain expectation when when you see me uh in some instances I'm going to do Something standard or expected. And then when I do my music, it's sort of like, it's not. <laughs> and so I, I think I like to keep people guessing, you know, in that regard.
0: Well, I remember when we, because you and I met at either the second or the third Snafu, Sunday Night All Folked Up, that was organized and run by David Morielli, And I thank him for allowing me to get back into the music scene. And that's where I met you. right. We had both, I guess, arrived early. I don't remember who, whether you were there when I got there or I was there and you came in. And either we sat at the same table or adjoining tables. And since there wasn't too much going on, a lot of people hadn't showed up yet, we started our conversation. And you were like, you've referred to me as your musical brother. And I, I reciprocate, not always to you directly, but to other people. Because in the first 10 seconds, you were just part of me. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I've always, you know, you're my oldest, not in age, because I'm older than you, yeah. but in the Frederick area, you're the my oldest musical friend.
1: Oh my goodness. Wow, I didn't realize that. Because
0: I had just basically picked up the guitar, dusted it off after 12 or 15 years and gotten back into it at home, happened to see David Morreale's, because I was looking for local music and they had that pedestal at, at Borders. And there was David Moriali on a poster talking about his snafu. And I thought that'd be interesting. So I went purely just to listen the first time. I don't think I even performed the first time. And that's where I met you.
1: Wow. Yeah. Cause uh, I had been up at the Susquehanna music and arts festival. And um, when I was plugging into that network of incredible um, personalities and musicians, uh, there was a song circle, and I got to meet David. Now, uh, Steve and Sherry Panzer, who are notable house concert uh, impresarios, uh, had told me, hey, you live near Frederick? Well, there's David Moriali. And so here I was at the SMAF, the Susquehanna Music and Arts Festival, in a song circle, and David was there. He says, hey, man, I've got this, uh, this thing back in Frederick. Uh, I'm leaving to go, go back and host, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and so we drove back from uh, Harvard to Grace, um, and that's uh, where I met you, and that's where I got to actually play again with David, because we were at that song circle the, the night before.
0: I didn't realize you had known him prior to that night.
1: <laughs> yeah, about about 24 hours. <laughs>
0: I mean, he yeah. did a wonderful thing with that snafu because it yeah. really on Sunday evenings at the Frederick coffee company, that was a happening.
1: Yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. Uh, and it, it sort of exposed me to the talent that was here in Frederick and also it was everything, uh, for, for the initial five years for me was a workshop. So hearing other people perform, uh, Watching them do the, their their stage presence, uh, how they delivered uh, backstories, uh, what they actually played, how they played the equipment. Uh, it was, you know, I think it. Everybody who's played five years or more, you know, has has these experiences. And I think from the other guys, <clears throat> the other Fame founders uh, that you have uh, have interviewed thus far. We've all had that same experience of, you know, getting into this place where there's a a bunch of like minded people and just really soaking things up like like a sponge and uh, and incorporating it, you know, not not losing ourselves, but taking the best of all these things uh, to to give our audiences, you know, the, the best we can.
0: Well, that brings up uh, fame, Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise, and you are one of the founding members. The What attracted you to the idea that Rick brought to, to the table?
1: Uh, well, I, I'd been in the military uh, for active duty for like 29 years, and uh, there was this camaraderie uh, in the military, that wherever you went, you know you plugged in uh, to a unit uh, and you, you know wherever you were in the world and, and you and you had um, friendships that you reconnected and I was looking for that in civilian life and uh, I was part of the the poetry community and the the artists that supported the the local artists and here in the music. Uh, arena. I was looking for that same sort of thing, and uh, I was a, already a Songwriters Association Washington uh, member, and was seeking that sort of camaraderie there. And then here in the Frederick area, we had enough people who were like yourself and Rod D.C. and uh, and then Rick Hill came to town, bringing the snowstorm with him that I'll never. That's February. right. Um, it was his fault. <laughs> it was absolutely uh, coming from New York, bringing all that snow um, that uh, I said, well, this sounds like a great idea. And, you know, at one point we said, well, there might be a financial component. We may get grant money. Um, but to me, it seemed like uh, here's a great opportunity to recognize that we're all in this this family of, of musicians in that. And the, the really interesting, it's not interesting. The, the beneficial thing about this community and Frederick in the contemporary folk scene was that I, I never felt a, a sense of competition. I, I did experience, um, sort of, um, a, a standard, uh, to be achieved if you wanted to play say the Frederick coffee company at the time was sort of like the premier place for, for us to play. And, you know, you and Rod DC were old hands and it performed, you know, professionally. And I was kind of the wannabe kid. And uh, it took a while for me to finally book my gigs, but getting back to your question about being part of fame was that I just, Wanted to plug in, and, and I think I had some, some other things to contribute um, aside from being on the board of directors. I have some uh, administrative skills that I could bring, and I'd actually been with another nonprofit uh, organization, uh, the Moyer Ensemble, which uh, I think this will be their 50th year. Uh, it's a gospel group that I'd actually met when I was in Panama. I was, believe it or not, I was an electric guitar player for a gospel service in Panama uh, for about a year or so, playing lead guitar. Um, but when I got the DCA, I was with them, but they were looking to become a nonprofit. So I I helped with that and had that experience. But Todd, this, <laughs> here's the thing. Uh, watching their poor treasurer struggle with getting all this stuff together, I said to myself, I will never do that. And guess what?
0: <laughs> you became the first treasurer of the Frederick <laughs> Acoustic the Music Enterprise.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, so never say never, right?
0: That, that is true. Now, you were, and I, I don't want to say instrumental, but you really were, I, I will use the word instrumental, in making the Frederick Coffee Company the now defunct for gosh, it's been three or four years was the last one we did, but you were instrumental in really making that a happening thing because I had gone to or attended not to perform, but to watch one or two of the original versions of that. And it was kind of a lackluster one or two people would show up and the host would sing for 45 minutes, I think. And then during the, after the bubble burst in the real estate market in 2006, 2007, I remember, I think you approached me first. I don't think it was Maggie about being, a you know, because you didn't want to host every week. And, you know, would you do the alternate weeks? And I was like, so against it. I really was. I Wow. I didn't want to do that. Um, and I went to the, you know, I think Maggie said, well, come out, Tommy's going to host it and, and, you know, take a look. And I sat in the back and I kind of watched and listened. And I thought, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And, you know, I I think it's terrific for Tommy, but I don't want to do this. I mean, I went in kicking and screaming and she came up at the end of the show and she's big smile on her face. As you remember, she was always so personable. Yeah. And said, well, what do you think? I said, well, well, you know, never burn your bridges. Right, Tommy?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 It was
0: okay. She said, well, will you do it? I said, I don't know, Maggie. It's not really for me. She goes, well, I tell you what, do it one time to give Tommy a night off. If you don't like it, that's fine, but at least you would have tried. And I said, okay, I will do that. And I have to tell you that that first time I did it, as nerve-wracking as it was trying to herd cats, as you know, because you still do open mics, right? I loved it. And part of the reason I loved it and part of the way I learned how to do it was by watching you that first time. So thank oh, my- you for that.
1: Hi. I had no idea. My my memory was that, uh, and I was tr- I was trying to remember um, the the, the fellow who who organized it be- before because there was a void after. It was this was kind of had its roots in um, snafu with David Morioli. Then there was a, another fellow that came and uh, he did it for a while and he, he was pursuing uh, further uh, education and so that's when Maggie had talked about continuing on, but if if I recall she said I, this is too much for, for one person, and so she told me she had mentioned to me that that you were that you were going to do it with me, so I didn't realize it was <laughs> what else was going on, but it as I recall, it was like, hey, I don't want to have you to do it all the time, so you and Todd can trade it off, and you guys work it out so uh, i'm well, thank you for for that. I'm glad that I was able to apply all of the things that I'd learned because this whole open mic thing, when I was just getting out of the military, I was a contractor down in uh, Alexandria Falls Church. And there was a young guy, uh, his name was uh, John Duncan, and he uh, hosted an open mic because I, I kind of saw this trajectory. I guess it was sort of like the military, you know, that you know you have particular assignments there's certain things you do to to advance and get ahead and so as I was sort of applying that template to the music business and in in getting gigs and and actually being an open mic host um this kid told me about doing this I said oh man I'd love to do that and then I had this opportunity and uh he said, yeah, sometimes you know you want to play in the whole evening, and other times, you know, you just make the introductions and just do that. And so um got this opportunity and I said, Well, if I'm gonna do this, and then you and I all through Frederick, we're like doing this format of uh sort of trading off. There was the what was it, the the cup, the uh, coffee cup uh, out in Whittier?
0: Yes. Uh, yep.
1: And uh so we did this, uh did that there uh and mentioning
0: the coffee cup the um one of my favorite performances there you had stopped by i was booked solo and i think it was a lackluster night as far as people in the seats and you had your guitar with you or maybe you didn't and you came i said "Tommy, come up and sing and we did 1960s Kind of radio friendly stuff, what we could remember harmonizing, right. and that was one of my favorite all time performances
1: wow, yeah, yeah, I do remember that, yeah, it was great well um, there's there's this thing about um, and I guess in all generations, but it's sort of neat when you plug in with people and you and you don't have to. You know, go very far t- to make a cultural reference, and, and you get it like a TV show or songs of the of the time, and uh, it it was just sort of a natural thing. And so, um, you know, when you when you played a Brewer's Alley or we played the Coffee Company and the songs that you wrote, uh, to me the influences were obvious, and 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 I didn't mean to uh, take you down to make you sound like some of these groups, but the, some of these parts and things we're just sort of natural. And so we, we just sort of click. So yeah, we we've got this sort of familia familial uh, <laughs> musical thing going on. So.
0: Now let, let's go to the transition from active singer songwriter playing guitar to playing percussion drums.
1: Oh yeah. So I want to thank Mariana Erickson for, uh, for kind of giving me the opportunity to give, I guess, full voice to percussion when I was doing the open mic at uh, the coffee company uh, mariana had a uh, an event um, and it was uh, it was a jazz uh, weekly uh, sort of jam and, uh, and so I guess it was, it was uh, java and jazz
0: yes java and jazz
1: right and it was there at the the coffee company and we could never get um, a regular drummer. Um, that was a, a big schlep for, uh, for a musician. I mean, the, the jazz cats would come in and they'd have their, their brass or their woodwinds or their and and that was an easy lift for them. But to have a guy bring in a full kit uh, every week wasn't working. And so um, I think I kind of wanted to fill that void to help her out. and and to help uh, be sort of like the core for other musicians. If we could have gotten a bass player, that would have been great to a regular bass player. Um, But I started off with, a, I guess, a tambourine on my foot and a djembe, and uh, actually played brushes on a djembe with a tambourine on my foot. And then uh, so many years later, I actually expanded to the setup that I have now, a hi-hat. Uh, I actually got my uh, my bass drum from the, the music department of Home Depot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've been in that <laughs> <'cause> I, aisle.
1: <laughs> I, I, use, I use a storage container as a, a bass drum with a kick pedal uh, and then a set of bongos. But it, it went from uh, bongos to a djembe. Uh, to a high hat and uh, but playing with playing with these jazz guys and doing jazz standards I actually sort of kind of got back into this percussion thing that I had done in late high school and then off and on um, through the years when I was with the military um, so that's that's kind of uh, how how that came to be and and how it sustained me and Todd honestly of all the uh, musical professional endeavors. That's been the the most lucrative for me because now I'm I'm actually playing with uh, a group of uh, Karen Dale's uh, Locks and Vodka uh, with some regularity, uh, and it's 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 really great. And I actually do the percussion for the uh, Step Up Frederick uh, students' songwriting contest. Uh, so yeah, I, I I love doing it. And I think the other thing about the percussion was I had the opportunity there at the coffee company to accompany musicians so, and Brewers Alley. So I kind of learned, and I guess I want a hat tip here to Doug Allen Wilcox, who's going to be the next podcast interviewee that you're going to have, because Doug was a masterful guitar player and percussionist. And I saw him doing backing percussion and actually uh, enlisted Doug to be my backing percussionist. Uh, So I kind of watched how how he did it. And and Leah Morris also is a great percussionist that I was inspired by, uh, who's an incredible songwriter and performer.
0: Well, you do have an, well, at Burr's Alley, when people would come in who did not know you as a percussionist and and some of the traveling songwriters, of course, they knew you sort of, maybe not at all. And somehow it brought up, you want Tommy and, and, you know, Rod, they knew uh, the, um, Ron from his, because he's so well known as a percussionist and and drummer, but they would kind of look over at at you and kind of go, I don't know. And, And I would look at, or Rod would look at them and go, no, he'll be fine. Well, I need to tell him the tempo. No, you don't. All you have to do is just start playing. He'll be right there with you. And one of the things you are incredibly good at, and I've mentioned this to many people, and they agree, is how you do this, I don't know. You anticipate a break in the song. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's. I forgot who the, I have forgotten who the performer was. They reluctantly agreed to let both of you, or or maybe maybe Ron wasn't there that night and you're playing percussion and they were a little hesitant, but you were going along and they forgot to say there's a break in the middle of the song. And they stopped that look of sheer terror until they realized you had stopped at the exact time and then started again. And that look, they looked at you with this wonderment, like how did he have any clue? How do you do that?
2: Uh,
1: this telepathic drumming thing is, uh is, uh, I, I it's a gift. Uh, I, um, again, I want to harken back to the Susquehanna music and arts festival. Uh, I'd seen some incredible percussionists there. Uh, there's a uh, Laura that uh, backed up Sonia, uh, yes. Laura Sproulie. Uh, and she also played with, uh, uh, what's her name? My goodness. But, um, a little company, uh, uh, Ashlyn, uh, but uh, a, a black sheep, Mama's black sheep, I think, is the group now, um, and uh, Cheryl pra- uh, Presker. Um, but these these women were like so on playing, just jumping in and playing with musicians, and they'd never played with them before, and and I I don't know. Um, I don't know if I play behind the beat or i I really watch the body language you know being a guitar player, I watch for cues i um some people will you know tip when I play with Willie if it's a new song you know he'll he'll tip the head of of the guitar um but I just watch and anticipate um what they're doing, so I'll either watch their foot to make sure I'm in sync with them um I watch their strumming. Uh, I think I think it may have been Tony Danaikis um that I had uh, sat in with and he was kind of just blown away and then he actually hired me for several months we, we played um, um down the road uh, uh down 70. Um but yeah, I I, I don't know, I just feel it, you know. And uh you know and having played with you, you know, there there breaks. Um and so I know their breaks not to be filled or, or there, or I can play through if it's, you know, if if people coordinate, but I, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's the long answer. I'm not really sure. I just feel it, you know?
0: Well, what is the future hold for Tommy one M right?
1: My goodness. Well, hopefully we get through this thing and get back in, uh, actually in the near term, we're hoping to have the, uh, uh, Chords of Courage step up uh, Frederick uh, Student Songwriting Awards show uh, in a couple of months with these uh, student songwriters uh, who've written songs about courageous people. Uh, there's there's nine finalists. And I've got some other things uh, booked with uh, uh, with uh, Lox and Vaco with carondale And uh, this cast Thursday uh, was the first time in eleven years we haven't had a uh, uh, an open mic at beans in the belfry so I hope to get back to that so it's 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 pretty much uh, hosting and and doing percussion I'm not sure when my next solo uh, guitar gigs gonna be uh, but that's kind of you know what I'm looking at and uh, maybe getting back in the studio and and looking at some of those things that I previously, previously recorded and actually have Jeff Fite, um, uh and his uh, producer, Mike uh, Conway, uh, get these things uh, out for people to hear.
0: Well, Tommy, this has been absolutely wonderful. I have learned more about you in one hour than the last 20 years have told me.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Wow. So, yeah. and, I, and I, I'm sure people listening, and just so that you're aware, and people who are listening are aware, this uh, Wispy Mop Music Radio podcast series is now on iTunes. So, it's not just the Podbean, the Wispy Mop Music. com. You can find it on iTunes or what they call Apple Podcasts now. I unfortunately don't know how to find it yet without using the little thing that's about 45 letters and numbers and digits and so forth, but, uh, I'm sure people will be able to find it. So you may be global a second time. Wow. How about about that?
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, for doing this and and sharing my music. Uh, it, I think there's like one or two hard copy CDs still with CD baby, but I think they're transitioning to just doing all digital, but, uh, I, I appreciate that Todd and, uh, thanks for your friendship. And again, uh, happy birthday uh, thank you very a, much this is a great thing you're doing and and i wish all the best to the follow-on uh, podcast uh, interviewees and especially to doug allen wilcox
0: well thank you ladies and gentlemen for listening and we're going to give tommy one and right a round of applause
1: oh thank you very much
0: I'm not sure if you can hear that, Tommy, because we're, we're on the cell phone, but everyone did applaud for you. Thank you so much, and uh, you have a wonderful day.
1: Okay, you too, Todd. Thanks, Thanks Tommy. Everybody.
0: Well, that was Tommy 1M Wright. He's a good friend of mine. He's a terrific musician, singer, songwriter. And as you heard, he is also a percussionist. If you're enjoying the podcast series, the Wispy Mop Music Radio Podcast Series, you can either look for it on iTunes or you can go directly to wispymopmusic.podbean. Podbean is spelled P O D B E A N dot com. Wispymopmusic dot podbean dot com. This is the fifth show, and hopefully we'll have the Doug Allen Wilcox inter- interview coming up in the next week or so. In the meantime, we're going to finish off with a song from Tommy one M. CD called The Show of Force. Thanks so much for listening. The Wispy Mop Music radio podcast series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music studios. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: They're all viewed to be so bold. are viewed to be the show of force as the temperature grows colder. Full moon tonight has risen with the warnings we received of lunatics and perverts and acts so indiscreet. An escape is sure to happen, but for most it'll be through sleep. they are all viewed to be a force as sweet liberty weeps. I think of you, my darling. Barbed wire and fences pass. I long for you, my darling. This insanity can't last. We're all viewed to be so willing. We're all viewed to be so bold. We're all viewed to be the show of force now. Country's hearts are cold.